Welcome to Intentional Growth, a show that teaches you as a business owner and entrepreneur to view and run your company like a financial asset, which will allow you to enjoy work, create wealth, and make an impact. This mindset will help you focus on building a more valuable business and give you the choices to grow, acquire, reinvest, or exit and live the life you plan for, all with intention. And now here's your host, Ryan Tansom. Hey everybody, we are on part two of the three-part series of demystifying business valuations. If you did not check out last episode last week, my business partner Pat Hobby and I lay the groundwork on how to think about value, the different kind of concepts to viewing valuations and laying down some of the concepts to make today, uh, today's episode and next week's episode more impactful. I have Dave Deal on the podcast today. It's his third time. I enjoy Dave so much and he was on a roll with Gold Nuggets today. He's the CEO of Prairie Capital. It's a middle market investment banking firm in Chicago. He's gonna lay down uh, some of the overview of Prairie right when we kick into the interview. But the purpose of today's interview and the topic is understanding the intrinsic value of a company because as we all own businesses today as entrepreneurs, we wanna better understand that value so we can focus on growing that value. So we wanna really hone in today on how do financial buyers view the company's cash flow and how do they perceive risk? What are they thinking about when they look at that cash flow? How do we tell that story of the future potential of that company? And how do we view the company as an asset today? It's really just a fantastic episode from someone that has been in the market for decades of doing deals and viewing companies as an asset and viewing risk in the cash flow and how they're applying that risk to the enterprise value. I'm very excited for this episode. So thank you so much, Dave Deal, for being on the show. And if you have not checked out the Intentional Growth uh, Financial Assessment, to help you clarify your financials and how to view it as an asset and project out that value, I suggest checking out the show notes or going to arcona.io. 22 questions and you get a, a score, but more importantly on the results page, Pat, Hobby, and I have got five, picture, uh, five videos where we walk you through what good looks like and how to actually view your company as an asset. And that layers right into this topic that we're gonna be diving into today is once you understand your value and the intrinsic value, you can measure and monitor that using your company financials like Pat and I walk through all the time, every month during your during your monthly package, and it doesn't have to be a mystery. So hopefully this is helping you demystify the valuations that and how to understand them. So without further ado, thank you so much for tuning in. And here's Dave Deal. You ever found yourself in your office after an executive meeting and you're sitting there going, I have huge decisions to make, whether it's hiring that next key employee, buying that next piece of machinery, buying a building, launching a location or product or whatever it might be, and you're sitting there going, is this the right decision? And then you think back about the original vision you had when you started the business or the vision you have right now that you know is possible in the marketplace and you sit there and go, how do you know and how do I know that what I'm doing is the right thing when realistically you have the option just take all the money home and solve for annual cash flow and essentially just have a job that's kicking out a lot of cash. The reason that you would do all those things is because you want to grow a company that's worth a bunch of money that gives you the freedom of choices to do what you want long term. Whether that's take a back seat and be a passive investor, whether that's sell part of it or some of it, essentially just have as many choices as you want 
But what we find is that most times entrepreneurs and business owners are solving for annual cash flow because they don't know how to measure and monitor the value of the business and where they are today and how what they're investing and doing is growing a more valuable business and how to measure that into the future. And I had experienced the exact same thing. I ran a family business that was doing 20 million in revenue, 100 and some employees. And my dad and I had this constant conversation back and forth about what we should be doing and where we should be going, but we never really knew whether what we were spending our time and money on was making us progress towards that eventual goal of having a valuation that we wanted that gave us the choices. So then you have to sit there and go, maybe I should just take the money home or I should just hope and pray. That is exactly why we created this financial assessment because if you organize your financials in a certain way, and we have this financial foundation with four components, you take this assessment, it's 22 questions, you don't need your financials, and at the end result of it, there's a results page where Pat, my partner, and I walk through five videos to show you a case study of what good looks like and how to actually project out the future value of the company and how you can make the, the decision's clear today to say, if I do these things, what's the impact on cash flow today, my ability to fund my growth, take the distributions, pay for taxes, all while staying in line, progressing towards the valuation that I want. So go take the assessment below and I hope you enjoy. Dave, how are you? Very good, Ryan, how are you doing? Uh, I'm so excited you're back. This is actually number three, I think, isn't it? This is. First time yes. in video though, I think. <laughs> uh, it's, all, it's all good. You, you got good light. We're all, we're all good. Um, and most people are listening in anyways. So I'm super, super pumped to have you on this, uh, on this particular theme and this three-part series because of your background, the structure of Prairie and your, your guys' view on valuations and companies in general. We're going to be talking about intrinsic value and kind of the, the, the risk of the cash flow. But why don't you just give everybody just a quick update, your role, Prairie, kind of the suite of services to give some context for everybody. Sure. Uh, my name is David Deal. I'm the CEO of Prairie Capital Advisors. Uh, we're a middle market ownership transition slash investment banking firm. Uh, so our sole focus is on helping privately held business owners uh, transition their business interest, whether they be for the whole company or for minority interests of companies. Uh, so we help companies, uh, you know, transition, you know, ownership that they've helped to build and grow organizations throughout the course of time through a number of means, including sale to a third party. So traditional M&A, ESOPs, where you're uh, using a tax advantage strategy to sell uh, the business to a trust, which is uh, for the benefit of all the employees, uh, management buyouts, uh, as well as uh, selling uh, inner family, so in transitions within families. Uh, we have offices located uh, where our headquarters are here in Oak Brook, Illinois. Uh, we also have an office in downtown Chicago, uh, Atlanta, Columbus, Cedar Rapids, uh, Kansas City, you know, are, and Louisville are all our offices. So uh, spread around the country, we have a, a nationwide practice uh, and, and really are industry agnostic. So we, we cover almost all industries with the exception really of of retail and uh, you know some some really high tech stuff or software related entities. That's awesome, Dave. And and I appreciate. I was I was smiling because I was like, you guys keep adding locations. It's going to be hard for you to keep keep rattling off. It's like going to <laughs> going to a bar and it's like, what do you have on tap? And there was like forty five different things. No, um, I digress. Yeah, I need, the, I need an acronym <laughs> that I can remember them all in order. So uh, I love it. You know, I want to highlight what you said because you you had talked about all these different options to monetize the equity of a business and transition it, which is why I've always enjoyed your guys' presence, your approach, because 
you're not jamming someone down an avenue that they don't want, which is just super fascinating. And I think it's uh, it's something that's you know a lot more unique in your space than than typical. Absolutely. I mean, and as a mid-sized firm that's trying to cover the ground that we cover in the country, the biggest thing for us is having satisfied clients, and and in doing so, we want them to be fully educated. And you know, it's not a matter of us just coming in and executing a process for someone. You know, it's it's all about education, making sure that they understand that they're comfortable with what they're doing, and that they find the right solution for themselves at the right time. And that's that's our biggest key. And and so. You know, we're never going to push anyone from a timing standpoint, and we're never going to push a certain product. It's all about what's right for the client, uh, and we're willing to execute on that. And fortunately, over the last 26 years, we've we've had a, a lot of clients all over the country, and they've been extremely happy and have helped to continue to spread the word. So, uh, you know, our sales force isn't big enough to cover that big of a geography. So it's good. good it's to do obviously it. It feels, working. <laughs> yeah, it feels great to do the you know right by everyone, and and to have them going through because a big part of the process of ownership transition too is you know, making sure that in the end, the parties are happy. I mean, there is and can be, you know, remorse after a sale, particularly if they don't quite understand what they're getting into or understand all the psychological implications mm-hmm. of selling a business. And I think, you know, we like to work with, we, we always say we're, we're 50% corporate finance, 50% corporate psychology, because <laughs> we want to we want to put people in the mode of what they're going to feel like and, and be experiencing uh, through the process and after the process to make sure that it's all there. Because, uh, usually when people first come to us, the thought is, okay, well, I need to sell my business. It's about the money. And the money is just one piece of the totality of the of the process. And, and certainly it's the least emotional piece in that. So it's something that you know, we take a lot of pride in and, and want to make sure all of our clients um, you know, have that full education. And it sounds so natural, you know, coming out of your mouth. However, it's, it is actually unique, which is, which is, I think, so special about how you guys have structured your company. And, and, and I think why kind of teeing up the, the topic that we're going to be diving into today about the intrinsic value and measuring and monitoring the value of your company while you own it. And you, you get, you listen to Pat and I's discussion, kind of introducing this topic and, you know, you've worked with Pat a couple of times in the past. And I, the one, how I want to start this off is like, so many times, Dave, I hear people say like, I'll never know what my company's worth until I somewhere, some down, someone down the road writes me a check, but I won't know until then. And Pat and I introduced the concept that that's not the case. So I wanted to hear your thoughts and you've probably heard that narrative a thousand times in your career. Sure. No. And it's, it's something that's important to know. Yeah. I think the reality is, is that by definition, uh, you know, fair market value is with a willing buyer, willing seller, and there is a transaction. So in order to get perfect value and to understand that, you have to go through a complete and full process. But uh, you know, that's not necessary. Most ownership transition doesn't happen with a complete and full process. So what's important to understand is really getting to the, the value of things and, and understanding how that value is derived. And you know, for us, for any company that's looking to do a transition or even looking outward towards doing a transition, valuation is incredibly important. I mean, you really can't plan without it. Uh, So uh, there's a lot of things that we can do in looking inside the company and to the external market to help people to derive values or, or, you know, sound ranges of where the value uh, would be, whether it be today or down the road based on their execution of certain plans. And, and, it's when you say like you, I like how you, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say like the perfect value. Cause you're right. Cause that's when we, when Pat and I were talking about transaction value, like th- there's something that there's a deal that was consummated and then you can show everybody, this is the purchase price that was exchanged. But there's also like, you can't just not plan for years sure. without 
You know what I mean? So you have to identify and judge and measure the value. And when, when you talk about you get a couple of your uh, uh, service lines of management, buyouts, family transitions, ESOPs, you're, you're looking at that company as it stands on its own versus like, you know, you have like a strategic buyer, like, you know, how many times you and I have heard like, hey, this person would love to buy me because of these reasons. And that's, that's they're not talking about cash flow. Usually it's talking about strategic reasons to bolt on to someone else versus, hey, this entity here with, with cash flow is worth these things. So maybe just kind of, I don't know if I, I, where, the, where the question lies in there, other than you guys, you're, you're viewing the business through the lens of the cash flow for those purposes as it stands. Is that a fair way of putting that? Yeah. I mean, you know, intrinsic value um, of a business without including any synergies and whatnot is, is really about looking at the cash flow dynamics of the business and, and you know, what type of return that will generate. So, at the end of the day, no different than you know any other financial instrument. It's all about risk return, and so when we look at these businesses on a standalone basis, based on their expected cash flows without any significant modification, if you're going to put in an equity investment in that, you need to understand the return. And so, you know, looking at that, obviously there's more risk to putting in equity. There's different businesses that have different risks that'll generate different you know, intrinsic values, but um, it's just important to, you know, to look at the whole and, it, and it's, it's no different than a CD. It's like you invest in a CD, you have a guaranteed rate of return. That rate of return is low because it is guaranteed at that level. And the further you move up the risk spectrum, uh, the more re- return you can get. And so, you know, the same dynamics go in pricing privately held companies in a buildup through a number of different methodologies. And I really enjoy how you said, I mean, it's, it's the cash flow, right? And it's understanding risk. So like, let's talk about how you, you and I were, when we were kind of prepping for this, you talked about you know, the discounted cash flow approach, which is on the, on the value of the business versus the, the market approach. Maybe kind of give your definition of that. Cause I we want to focus in on the lens of the discounted cash flow as it stands. But why don't you kind of tee up that camera, that what your thoughts are on those two topics? Sure. I mean, on one end, let me let me go in kind of inverse order and start with the market approach. But the market mm-hmm. approach is really externally looking. We're looking at either privately held transactions where we have good data, public transactions where we have good data, or just general st- stock market dynamics within a given industry to try and extrapolate where those are pricing right now. So certainly in the public public stock market, easiest place to go and look to see where certain things are trading. If so, if an industry is trading, you know, at a twelve times PE multiple. We want to look at that and say, okay, well, here's here's where that industry is, but here's the differences in our company relative to that. Certainly, size being one, you know, sort of availability of capital, diversification, all these things come into play. So you're not going to simply take a multiple and apply it to the earnings of your own company to derive a value. You're going to need to make some adjustments, but those are good indications of of you know relative pricing for assets that you can apply directly to the company. But it is still a bit more general. When you get to a discounted cash flow analysis, you're really looking at the company-specific cash flows and dynamics within that organization. So you're modeling out free cash flows and you know projections for the company and what they're going to do from a sales earnings and capital expenditure standpoint to really understand what their net cash flows are going to be and then discounting those back to present value. I think the one thing that's important to recognize with any equity valuation is that the past is a helpful means of, of, of helping you understand uh, what the company can do and perform in the future. 
But when you buy equity, you're buying the future. You're buying the future mm-hmm. cash flow stream. You're not getting the past. So that's the most important element. And and so you know, rear view mirror looking methodologies are not well. They're they're helpful as a sanity check. They're not extremely helpful in deriving really accurate value there. So I think having the ability to talk with business owners to understand uh, specific dynamics and how their business operates really helps to build a good model uh, that can generate some really positive uh, results and accuracy in, in evaluation. Before we get into like kind of some more of the technical uh, stuff of like normalized EBITDA and how you guys would get there, but I think the perception of risk and value from the eyes of a financial buyer like an ESOP, like you know, whether it's a family transition or management buyout, you're representing that person that's mainly, the cash flow's got to stand on its own. So like, how as a financial buyer are you helping, or how do you view risk as it relates to this kind of ca- to cash flow? So I mean, risk is, an, is probably the most important metric outside of cash flow, because we can look at projections and whether or not those are realistic or can be really realistically achieved, you know, is, is, a, is a big piece of it. And so you know, when when we look at risk, you know, in, in the discounted cash flow analysis, we come up with the with the the cash flow stream, but then we discount that based on a cost of capital. Inherent in that cost of capital is the risk. So, if you were buying, you know, a one location business that the the owner was a you know he managed everything, and he's trying to sell his business so that he can go and retire, stepping into that role and his relationships is going to prove you know very difficult. You know, there's a potential that you're not able to replicate that, and so there's a lot of risk going to that. If you have a, a another company with a large management hierarchy that's functioning very well, that has you know significant diversification in their products and in their client base, you, you can have certain elements of that business uh, go south for a little bit, or others that accelerate you know in, in a grander growth fashion. But ultimately, you've you've got some hedges, and it, the, the the cash flow streams are far more secure. So there's far less risk, which means a lower cost of capital, and that lower cost of capital translates into a higher multiple. So you know it's all about it's without question valuation is all about risk and, and the assessment of risk in those cash flow streams. I want to kind of just just riff and kind of give you a couple of thoughts here, and then we can pick which one we want to uh, take first. Is one is like how you're figuring out that risk from a financial buyer because a strategic buyer is going to sit there and go, okay, what you know there's going to be more strategies of like bolting on or, you know, redundancies, but when it stands on its own, you know, how you're going about assessing that risk. And then the other part of this, Dave, is that by knowing the value and that risk, you can do something about it today while you own it. So then it's about de-risking. So like I said, I don't know how you want to take that, but these, this is the main kind of core of what you're and I is discussion. Like how do we get this through of what you people can do about this stuff today? Sure. No, and that's a again. That's another point. As we get engaged with clients, you know, sometimes they wait too long, and they come to us when they're ready to hit the beach and they want to go. In its best case, someone the second that they own something needs to be thinking about the disposition of that asset. So that has to be a part of their mindset. So you know, if you're if you're thinking, oh, I've just built this business for the last ten years, I'm ready to sell in ten more years. You can't wait the ten more years. You really need to stop and look at things today and say. You know what is this going to be worth in ten years? If it's not what I want it to be, how do I get it there? What are the things that I'm going to need to have within the business to again reduce this risk, which is going to increase the value? And that, in a lot of cases, is building up a stronger succession management team. It is making certain investments that 
you know, will we'll position the company better. It's improving the company's financial statements, all of these things to get more data and, and, and to have greater clarity and a story to the buyer that helps to remove any anxiety or risk uh, that they're tending to uh, perceive. So, you know, we'll see a lot of companies that are very well managed. They've, you know, they're in a great position. There's maybe only a few things they need to tweak in order to sell, in order to sell. But we have a ton of other companies that we see who you know, have a great entrepreneur who's been able to build an incredible widget or provide incredible service to his clients or her clients. But, you know, when they're trying to sell this, they, they, they've been doing a lot of it off of gut. They haven't been training people behind them. There's no ability for them to step out. It's, it's kind of more of a job than it is, you know, a, an mm-hmm. equity investment. Um, and so it, it's just removing them from the equation changes the, the whole dynamic. So in a perfect sense, being prepared, having this detail and, and really being intentional about what you're ultimately trying to achieve is, is key. And so I know, you know, we don't, we don't, we'll, we'll advise companies on things that we think that they can do to improve their value in general. But I think operationally, there's consultants like Arcona that could come in and, and talk to people about how to really analyze this. Because when you're looking at value, you know, you really want to look and say, okay, we need to have purpose as we look to grow and we look to achieve this goal. So it's like, what are we looking to achieve? You know, what's our plan to achieve that? And then what are, what are our, what's our data that we can do to monitor our progress in that? So having mm-hmm. all those things to help to drive to that is, is critical. And then when it transitions to us and we're able to take that at that point and go out to the market, we have all the data points, evidence, and ready responses to those inquiries that we're going to get from the buyers, how to alleviate some of their concerns as it relates to risk and how to give them confidence to move forward, ideally with an extended uh, pricing and, and higher offer. So, I like how you said, <laughs> you need to know where you want to be. I mean, it's amazing how that one question continues to surface its head all the time because so few people just sell more widgets or sell more hours or whatever it is that they're really good at, like you said. And a combination, It's I want to take that a step further, it's where you want to be from a valuation perspective. So you've got the time, but no, so few people know where they're at. <laughs> so then sure. it's like, so what I, what I find very fascinating is, you know, uh, we've used uh, Prairie to do what we, you know, I think you guys called the indication of value where it's not like something that you're going to go to court on or something like that, but it's for planning purposes that how do you maybe kind of explain how you're determining a value of a company as it stands today and like how that risk is determined? Because you got to understand where you're at to even have a judgment going no, absolutely. forward. Absolutely. And I mean, again, we, we use a lot of external data as a starting point to get those metrics to apply to the company that we're looking at. But at the end of the day, it's about doing due diligence. It's about understanding the business, you know, the, the basically a general SWOT analysis. Um, you know, what are the strengths? What are the weaknesses? You know, what do we what do we need to be concerned about in assessing that risk to come up with this value? And seeing you know how to best position it, and there can be companies that maybe their their intrinsic value is not great, but their you know their strategic value is because they mm-hmm. can fold in what's been built to another entity, and that can have value. But to try and transition that to a manager, there might be some things that are that are a bit broken that that make it difficult and risky for someone to uh, to step into that role. You know, so it's it's a uh, I mean. Again, it's, there, there's, a, there's a really, a, I mean, at the end of the day, evaluation is an academic exercise. 
but there's a lot of art and science that gets combined in it because in order to get a truly accurate valuation, you really need to understand business. You need to understand what's going on in the outside world from a valuation perspective, and you need to to apply you know risk uh, appropriately relative to what what you're perceiving in the marketplace. I, I like how you you brought up a great topic of like because how I've tried to describe this to people, Dave, is like yeah, you you almost don't want a foot in each bucket. Like hey, here's the financials, right? Like here's what's going on in the business, but then what's happening in the outside world that will impact. The, the perceived risk of this cash flow, but you kind of have to be doing both at the same time. And you know what I say to Dave, Dave, a lot of times to people, I'm like, what do you guys do? Like two, 400 and some valuations on ESOPs every year? Something like that? Yeah, and we do a little bit by 450 valuations a year. They're not selling, right? But it's a privately held company that has good financials that needs to be know what the heck it's worth every year so they can keep growing value for everybody. I'm like, I say to everybody, I'm like, you should run your company like a PE backed company or an ESOP because it's just that's just business. And so yeah. you're 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 constantly monitoring that value every year. Absolutely. And if you have the if you understand the key value drivers of a business and you can explain those and you can show how you're monitoring those, again, you you position yourself as best you can in in articulating that to someone else. You know, we have a lot of cases where you know it just we'll we'll get hired, we'll go in and we'll say, "Well, what's and this line of business, what are your margins? And they can't even answer that question. So I mean, it's like, how do you know if continuing along this business, this business line is even profitable for the company? Like, why would you put this much effort towards it if you don't know that it's there? And in, in a lot of cases, when we've stripped things out and we've we've helped to, we, people have gone and, and gone to that level, they've realized that they're making an inordinate amount of profit on one product offering, and they're making and losing money potentially on another. But it, it, it takes as much effort to chase both. I mean, so you know, getting getting a nice streamlined strategy and understanding these things is is really really critical. And that's where again, where we step in and and in having the experience that we have in selling businesses and in valuing businesses and in seeing all this activity again helps to combine the the art and science piece of this to to get the right elements. Because uh, sometimes what, what, what if you, would be- yeah, I was say, sometimes if you go straight stream uh, strictly off the academic side of things. People might look at the micro. They might look at each individual decision they're making within a model and prove it to themselves that they think that this is all correct. But when you step back in the macro, some of these things are in conflict with another, and you end up with a with a poor result. So, and which is also why the market approach and the income approach are good to have side by side because if there's something that's extremely, you know, different from the two of them, it kind of tells you that there, there there's some just input difficulty or maybe a incorrect assessment of some level of risk. That was very clear about how you put like the art and the science on it. And, and one thing that I've also, and you and I talked about this on our, on our uh, short prep call is like the, like the value that a financial buyer can pay is only a certain amount because it's all based on the cash flow, right? Like, cause like, and I'm going to try and say it in my own words, which are definitely not going to be as uh, clear as yours. But like, if someone's, if I said to you, like, Hey, our cone is worth 20 million bucks right now. And you're going to go, well, just mathematically it's not. <laughs> and so like, sure. you know, how, like you, it has to be able to pay for itself versus to your point. Like I could go, there could be EY might want this and be able to, you know, make more than that off of it. But the intrinsic value and the cash flow value can only yield a certain amount. Can you explain maybe, in, or either restate what I said or, or correct me or, and then explain why that is? No, I mean, I, I mean, again, it's a, it's a good point. But when you're looking at, at things from a financial buyer's perspective, so that's any internal transition, 
even private equity, if they don't have a platform that they're that they're buying this into, that's going to yield some synergies, they've got to look at what they can return from their investment. And so, you know, a, a, a strategic buyer might say, well, we're going to add all these synergies. And so, you know, we're going to be able to yield greater cash flows. So therefore, we can pay more and share in some of that. You don't have that availability here. So there are limits to where pricing can go to on a privately held company. And and again, from a we've talked about the market approach, we've talked about you know the the discounted cash flow model. There's kind of a third model, which is looking at just a capital stack. And so in no different than buying a house. And you know, we always use house analogies and things because people tend to understand it. But if you know, if you have a house and you can go out and borrow 80% on the purchase price of that house, you only need to put in 20% of the equity, you know, you're able to go in and buy up potentially to what you can borrow. It's like you're gonna reach limits to what you could even offer. But the whole market is predicated on people buying, uh, taking out mortgages to buy houses. If people had to just pay cash to buy a house, the value of houses would be way less than it is right now because people don't, you know, they don't have that ability. They'd have other means that they want to spend that cash on. But they're just all they're doing is they're they're looking at their ability to make the monthly payments and get as much asset as they want. It's no different with any sort of financial buyer. You know, when you look at what can be paid for a company, you know, you're looking at what can be borrowed. I mean, what's so the capital stack is effectively, you know, what can you borrow from a senior lender? What can you borrow from a subordinated lender? And then what needs to be put in from an equity standpoint? You know, that creates its own limitations really on what can be purchased. Because, you know, if if the if the cash flows don't allow you to pay off the debt or to stay, you know, you know, keep your, you know, keep current on that you're not going to be able to continue operating the company. You're going to go bankrupt. Um, so, you know, those, or you're going to need to put in more equity. And if you put in more equity, then you're reducing your returns. And so, you know, all the private equity firms and any smart financial buyer, including, you know, ESOPs are going to look at this and say, okay, well, how do I get out from this? How do I, how do I, in the end, make sure that this is going to be stable so that it's not a super high risk. It's not, you know, 50%, I'm going to succeed 50%. I'm going to fail. You know, you build in a nice cushion that you're going to succeed and that you have a path to go forward uh, to to achieve a return. And those capital stacks uh, really help to give you an idea there, too. So, you know, and it, what's what's interesting with that as well is, you know, from a capital stack standpoint, the bank is doing their own due diligence on the company. They're doing their own due diligence on the management team and the risk assessment. I mean, they're putting real dollars of their own in place without garnering a huge return. So they want to make sure that that's, you know, they're, they're safe. And so as they look to do that, you know, again, their, their diligence somewhat's defines and should be in line with the diligence of a, a buyer and how they're looking at, at risk assessing this. So I would say in general, I mean, a lot of the structures you'll tend to see is you're able to borrow about 60% or 55% of what's being bought and the rest of it needs to be filled in with equity. So, and, and that, because of that relationship with debt and equity also, that helps to magnify the returns to the equity holder. Again, similar to the house. When you have a mm-hmm. $200,000 equity in a house and a $800,000 mortgage, if the value of the house goes up $100,000, you've just made a 50% return. If you pay off fifty, you know, $100,000 of the debt, you've just made a 50% return. So whether you reduce the debt or whether you grow the business or the, and the value of the house, you know, you're you're magnifying your returns, and that's what you know private investors tend to do, and that's where they get their return for the risk that they're taking. 
That was so beautifully described, Dave. I, I seriously, like, I think that's one of the my favorite ways of having that unpack. Because, like, how I've said it in more way more layman's terms is, like, I just look, because I think of my old business a decade ago. I'm like, I just look people, and I'm like, how much debt would you feel comfortable servicing every month in your business? And they kind of just look at me, and they don't know, usually. And they don't know how that would impact their ability to fund their future growth and working capital or distributions or taxes. And so that that's the whole point, right? It's like you have zero idea about your cash flow. <laughs> like absolutely. And, and again, but again, in those cases, the banks are looking to the company to give them confidence so that they can extend themselves more. Which which well, gets to a whole nother point too. And that's you know, as you talk about being intentional about getting an exit uh, and getting the right pricing. You can do everything right in a business and not get to where you want to be at a, at a given point in time because of the external environment. So it's, it's not just what you're able to do and what you're trying to create, but it's also somewhat about timing because uh, there will be times when, you know, the market is not as receptive. You know, certainly when, when we're talking about, you know, uh, financial buyer situations, you know, when the banks get tight, multiples start to compress, pricing starts to compress, because again, that same relationship needs to hold as far as if someone's putting in a certain amount of equity, they need to garner a certain return for the for the debt or for the uh, equity they're putting in. And if there's less debt, then they've got to put in more equity. And so that, that can certainly limit the timing. Um, you know, right now we're in a time when there's private equity has a lot of, of fresh powder to, to invest in deals. Uh, the pandemic kind of shut things down for a bit, so they're playing a bit of catch up. So, you know, not a bad time from a liquidity standpoint and looking to to exit, but, you know, looking through that and it's all being about ready when the time is right, because mm-hmm. along with that, if the external environment isn't good, oftentimes the company's financials are probably not doing as well as they were previously. And so waiting to show that performance that you've built the company to to execute on in the right environment is important. So, you know, generally when I talk to someone about an exit, I'm like, give yourself a three to four year window of when you're going to do this and start, if you're starting to get ready, I mean, assess it along with that because that can make a big difference in in, in your pricing when you, when you look to exit. Well, think about how much stuff is going on in the last 24 months. No, I mean, I, I mean yeah. it went, you, from, you it went were, from fire sales to, to premium pricing in a matter of six months. Uh, <laughs> all be, and, 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 and the question is why, uh, right? And the, right. And the answer is, is liquidity. I mean, the government put a ton of liquidity in the system. Cost of capital went down. You know, there there weren't any alternative investments. So buying bonds into a market that was yielding virtually zero and had all sorts of principal risk caused people to buy more into equities and to look at alternative investments like buying private companies. And so we've seen a lot of movement. Uh, you're right. In the last last 24 months has been a exceptional thing that I'd love to write a paper on sometime because it's been fascinating. Well, I think you were, you were episode uh, 201 and it was right after we uh, changed the name of the podcast and it was, you were on, we were talking about what's the current state of valuations given the shitstorm we're in of the pandemic. And you're like, ah, it's like, we'll see. And there wasn't a market. I mean, (laughs) there weren't, there weren't buyers. People were holed up at home and, you know, watching Netflix, uh, and, and they, were, they weren't really looking at taking risk uh, in an environment they didn't understand. But again, that that, that turned around pretty quickly. And, and when the, all that capital got out there and there there were only certain asset classes that were even remotely attractive, it all flooded in. 
there's a couple of things I want to say. My brain just exploded. So one is I want to go back. I'm going to put a pin in this because I want to finish the previous story, but about um, the debt that the banks and how the banks impact multiples. You and I were talking about, you know, two turns versus three turns. Let's just put that over there for a second and come back to it. But there was a story where you were talking about like how much debt can your company afford and like the, the, the perceived risk and how things change. I wanted to get your reaction to this. I talked to a gentleman, he, you know, took out an SBA loan. There's a lot of these, you know, acquisition entrepreneurs that are out there and I'm more power to them. I love the, I love the entrepreneurial spirit, but the whole like, Hey, you only need five or 10% down to buy these companies that are in the lower market. Talk to this guy and he has a, an HVAC business, bought it based on the premium pricing, you know, a lot of debt down. And he's cause he's like, dude, I'm totally effed. He's like, labor went up 20%. I, I had a normal level working capital. Now I need like 500 grand worth of inventory that I didn't need because of supply chain issues. And he just can't afford it because he has no cash flow because it's all going to the bank. Yeah. But like he got that premium purchase or the, the, the premium purchase price because there was this perfect spreadsheet, would be my guess, accounting for zero errors. <laughs> yep. Uh, and, and, and yeah, I, I, we've seen that plenty. And, and for our clients, that's exactly what we're advising them not to do. I mean, You've got to have, I mean, things can get bad in either direction when when business starts to go down or even if you have hyper growth and you can't chase it when you have the opportunity. I mean, lost opportunity without having liquidity to pursue that is is a problem. So, you know, I think being very thoughtful and establishing your, your capital base is key. It's not about all going to getting the last dollar. It might be getting the last dollar from the bank's in total commitments, but that not all that money go toward the deal that a significant mm-hmm. amount of that, that availability stay into being able to finance the company. Um, and so there, yeah, there's a lot of, you know, there's some issues there, but you can't, yeah, you, you can't push it to the limit and say, I'm going to buy every dollar because again, the profit itself has a certain, uh, sometimes a significant amount of risk, or if there's something that's seasonal or cyclical, even worse, because you can have these wholesale swings and you know, the business might have been fine or might have thrived if you had liquidity, but you might get squeezed out because you're just not mm-hmm. able to keep up with your debt burden. Well, it's it's also interesting in the, how you mentioned about the hyper growth, too. And I was just to, I th- the reason I'm trying to hammer this home, because I, I think that there's this is just the the intrinsic value is really where the truth lies and the reality will snap it back the world at some point to show what what the real intrinsic value of that asset is and when you took uh, maybe it's another example about the growth is the there was a gentleman that i was talking to he wants to buy his partner out and like overpay because he sees this massive growth opportunity dave and he was explaining to me kind of these dynamics and i'm like he get like like significantly overpay for this business and then i was like you're not going to be able to fund any of your growth for 10 years if you do this so like, yeah. like to your point, like he sees all these opportunities and I'm like, well, but mechanically it just won't work. You yeah, know what I mean? Like I might believe you, in, but like. You'll have to bring in an equity partner. <laughs> that's pretty much how it summed up. He's yeah. like, I want to do this on my own. I'm like, well, I just, I don't know how to say, but you probably can't. <laughs> yeah, like no. it's to, to use Pat's phrase, math solves a lot of problems in this world. And like, that's just a math equation. That's not like an opportunity, like, you know, someone being a naysayer, it just is kind of how it works. Yeah, well, I think I think that's the critical part. I mean, you, you don't need to run a Monte Carlo simulation or something if you're trying to look at buying a business, but you certainly want to look at different scenarios and see how this could all play out because you know life isn't a straight line. So, you know, it's 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 critical to make sure that there is that flexibility 
you know, in, 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 this, in the structure that you're doing from a, any sort of leverage buyout. So that the perfect uh, uh, bounce back to the banks and senior lending because you you how you described it to me in the past is is a really cool way of looking at it of like what is the impact of senior lenders on valuations and then kind of getting into like how you were talking about the two turns versus three turns and how that ripples throughout the the valuation world. Sure, I mean again, right now if you look at things from a pricing standpoint in the market the banks are, are being very aggressive in pursuing things still. They're, they're a lot better than they were prior to the great you know, recession, but you know, they're, they're getting aggressive. They have so many deposits that they've got to find a way to go and make some money off this. So they need to book loans. And there was a pause in growth and so an expansion for a while during the pandemic. And now they're looking at going out there. So as they look and extend themselves and say, go for maybe a a two and a half times um, EBITDA lending environment to a three and a half times lending environment. Again, the way that that stacks up, getting that additional money allows for people to either get a greater return by paying the same price they were before, because now they're they're not putting in as much equity, so they're, they're getting this cheap money underneath them. Or in most cases, you know, if you do it right and you're being competitive, you're going to get people to give up some of that till they they extend the pricing. So right now, we we have seen you know, multiple expansion. And it's all related to, you know, the, the, the leverage situation. And even, even the cost of leverage, you know, even interest rates probably matter a little bit less than just credit availability um, in this. So that it certainly, interest rates increase your cost of capital, but it's, you know, at least you get to, you know, pre-tax that, you know, that payment by taking a deduction for it and whatnot. So for us, it's, the M&A markets and somebody's ability to get liquidity is just largely tied to credit availability more than more than any other metric. And it's and pricing, again, is, is driven off of that. Well, and credit availability, when you, you and I were talking prior, it's like just maybe in your mind, compare credit availability today to an 08, because a lot of people, you know, like when they're not in the world that you're in or talking to the people that you and I are all day long, they, they, they make maybe indirect or incorrect comparisons of like, hey, that was a recession, this is a recession, or everybody's talking about a recession right now. How like how does credit availability different? How is it different in both those situations? And how should people be looking at it? Well, I think compared to 08, it's very different. I mean, the banks all tightened up significantly after things started to crater. So you know, right now it's it's a good market. It's you know, looking for high quality deals, but they're willing to lend deep into those deals. Back then, I could we had we were working with an incredibly high quality company, recurring revenue, some of the biggest players in the world that they're servicing. We did a deal and they could only get one times EBITDA from the bank in that market. Oh, and I mean, it was a huge company. We were talking, that was like multi hundreds of millions of dollars. And, and we're just like, this is crazy. But the interesting part with that is that when you get to a point, you know, as, as credit extends, multiples extend, as credit contracts, multiples will contract to a degree, but they're, they don't, necessarily keep going. Because if credit gets really bad, there's a point at which you start to see that the banks have to start lending. Things are going to have to change. So you will see private equity come in and put in more equity into deals to get them done, knowing that six months, 12 months from now, they'll be able to refinance out some of that. So you know, in the private market, so any, any privately held business owner if you're looking at your own price and price trajectory, and this holds for ESOPs, if you look at an ESOP, which is also, again, a, a privately held business that's being valued once a year, you will see a lot more muted effect on price relative to the market. 
the market is a very the stock market is a very liquid basket of securities, and there's a much greater ebb and flow and volatility in their pricing. If you look at the statistics on privately held businesses and what multiples are paid for them, it is a relatively narrow band. It might be one turn of EBITDA that's that's different in certain times from a pure financial buyer's perspective. And again, it comes back to the math. I mean, there's there's only so much that you can extend on a price in order to continue to pay your your debt obligations. Um, so, you know, there's it. You know, people look and they're like, oh my God, the stock market's down 30%, our stock's going to be down 30%. Maybe if your performance is down 30%, but if if your performance is staying relatively steady, the external market isn't going to impact your pricing if you took it out. And I would say in, in this environment right now, you know, we have a lot of activity going on and you know, there hasn't been any uh, any real retrading of deals. So deals that we define had- re- define, re- so, yeah, define retrading real quick. So, so you know, when you get an LOI and you say you have an offer for your business of twenty million dollars and you're looking to close, it may take a few months for the all of diligence to be performed and documentation to get done, and whatnot. If the stock market in this case declines twenty percent during that window, sometimes you'll expect the buyers to come back and say, "We want a reduction in purchase price based off of market activity." You know, we haven't seen that, and again, I think that's because credit has held up. And people have been like, well, I don't want to lose this deal by trying to skin another million dollars off this purchase price. I'm willing to stick it through. And, and this really isn't impacting them because that's what I'm saying. The, the private equity or you know, the private you know, uh, private company markets, world, yeah, yeah. It, it's just it's, it, it doesn't move in quite as volatile a fashion. It, and do you think that's because, I mean, the, the, you know, everybody, when I say everybody, you got Buffett and all these people that talk about the fundamentals. I think the stock market world in the lingo kind of gets lost on some business owners um, where fundamentals are the cash flow. <laughs> it's like, like yeah. it's, you get all this emotional BS that's tied to the, the public stock markets. And I'm like, well, is the company still like, oh, it's like you just name the industry. You're like, well, that's going to be a good industry going forward. Like home services, you and I have probably bought home service companies have exploded because it's like people, you can't use AI, you need good people. And they it's it's an essential. And it's like, well, and it's got cash flow. Like, yep. It but is what it is, right? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and again, I, I think your point is is great, and that's that. You know, the, the the stock market will overshoot and it will undershoot at various times in its cycles, but when you look at kind of averages and kind of mean reversion, it all comes back to cash flow. <laughs> so I love you know, it. I just, it's just that you take it with a private private company world, we just shrink that band down significantly to the fluctuation. So it's yeah, it's just. Cash flow is everything, and and it's 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 about cash flow and it's about growth. So you know you can certainly increase your pricing based on growth because um, if you're growing into a cash flow stream, that has a lot of value. Um, Explain if you're just that, a, would you? I'm sorry. Explain that because I, I love yeah I, I'm loving what you're yeah, saying. Yeah, so I mean, basically, if you have two companies that are producing, maybe one company has been producing a million dollars of EBITDA forever. And another company is producing, had been producing 400,000, 500,000, 600,000 to a million. And now they're projecting to continue along that path. And there's good evidence that they will. Again, you might be at that point where they're both worth a million or they're both producing a million. But when you present value the cash flows, a business that has greater growth is going to be worth more because it has the greater ability to pay back debt, the greater ability to provide returns for that, that shareholder. So you want to take risk into account if this is speculative growth, but in a lot of cases, there's just 
some industries, some spaces that have growth or not, or that are have the capital to pursue growth. And so that's a big a big thing. I mean, if a, if a company is growing, um, you know, first is risk. But if even if you get two companies on the same risk profile, then there's growth, which is why in the pu- public stock market people look at the PEG ratios, which is a, which price uh, price earnings growth ratio, and that kind of takes out the growth component to see where they're really priced, you know, on a, on a relative basis, you know, without you know having that noise in there. I, <laughs> Everything you just said for the last like five minutes, man, I just like, it's just like this wave of fresh air. Dave, we did this presentation or this workshop, not presentation. Well, it was a panel, but we had like, I don't know, 70, 80 business owners uh, at this quarterly event. And it was about demystifying valuations, kind of a tie to this whole theme. And, you know, you get the questions about, because their people are just looking at the stock market because they don't have this information, which is the whole point of trying to bring this to everybody. So they're asking these questions about all the ridiculous shit that we see and I just, all I could say at one point is like, somewhere, somehow, someone needs to make money so everybody can pay their bills. <laughs> like, yep. All the stories of the, like, what you I mean, the, the liquidity and the flushness of the capital markets allowed the, the capital to flow into these ridiculous stories where there was no foreseeable cash flow. And I just yep. like, what the hell is going on here? Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I mean, crypto, meme stocks, it didn't matter. I mean, it just, they needed somewhere to go, and people were effectively gambling. I mean, when you don't have a, when you don't have, I mean, the intrinsic value is basically that this company has an economic underpinning to it. I mean, when you're looking at a at a DCF, and in a lot of those cases, it wasn't there. So at all, um, like yeah, anywhere, like Pat, Pat, one morning, Dave, he sent because he goes to Planet Fitness, and he he sends me a text, and it's a screenshot of their valuation and everything. Planet Fitness. I mean, they send ten. They sell ten dollar gym memberships with lots of stuff that probably costs lots of money. It's not an AI whatever you know data warehouse thing, and the the market cap was like four billion dollars, and the debt to equity ratio was like two hundred set negative two hundred seventy. I'm like, what? What the hell? Is going to I don't know if they're like three hundred million in revenue. I'm just like this is like you can make your money back, you know, in th- like uh, year three thousand two hundred or what? Yeah, sometimes sometimes that's how it prices out, and I can't make so, sense of that. I like I like cash flows. <laughs> Give me security. Uh, in a blanket. So, uh, <laughs> right. That's to rest on. Like, hey, like everything. You know, I want to hear the story. And as we're wrapping up here, you. I don't know how you worded it, but you were talking about the ability to tell stories and be able to predict the future. Because, you know, we're now we're talking about future cash flows and future growth potential. And a lot of times people look at history or trailing 12 months of EBITDA and the multiple, but there's so much that is part of the future and telling the story and being able to execute on that. I don't know how you worded that, but you you, you talked about the power and being able to see into the future and tell a story. I don't remember how you worded it. Yeah, no, I think a lot of this comes down to and you can't see into the future, but what you can do is show your deliberate intent to achieve certain results. And so if you're able to express that to someone, if you're able to show people that you've put in systems, you've put in personnel, you've put in a clear strategy that, that you have a, a universal goal to move towards, that's a story that people want to hear. And, and if you can sit and explain and show and share your vision on things like that, again, it's, it reduces risk. And it helps people to better understand and step into uh, those roles. I mean, we can look at, you know, anytime someone comes to us with something that's out of industry growth rates, we've got to question it pretty hard. And the hope is, hey, we picked up a new client. We just built a new facility. 
bought a new piece of machinery, or here's a new technology or, or something IP that we have that we can go after. It's just, you know, what's what's the story? I mean, what's to get someone excited about buying into the opportunity and and, and looking at, at the return dynamics that can be there? Because you know, that, that's what they need. I mean, if, if you come in and if you, if you don't control that narrative at some level as a seller, or as you're preparing to get to that point of being a seller, if you don't control that narrative, the buyer will. And the buyer's narrative is going to bring in questions that you can't answer, which then raises the risk profile, which then allows them to be able to push back on things. So, you know, you want to control the narrative and, and even more so, you know, you want to produce the results. And so you, if you if you plan for things, you tend to get them. If, if, if you planned well and you put together a strategy to achieve them. I mean, that's otherwise you're just you know, if, if you're all you're doing is looking and saying, okay, well, let's just get the next sale, um, because your your incentives are short term because they're bonuses or whatnot, and you're not looking long term or having people with incentives over the medium or long term to where they're striving to grow equity value, you can really get yourself sideways. So, I think you know, controlling that that narrative is is key. And if we have people that think, hey, we know people in this industry, just go take us to them and they'll pay us top dollar. It's like it's not going to happen. You know, we need to be prepared to walk into that. And when they ask a question, we're going to answer it. When they delve into something, we're going to have a clear response and we're going to have a clear strategy. It doesn't matter if they buy into that strategy or not. What matters is that there's there's clarity and confidence and, and that that can be, be communicated. You know, and <laughs> one other awesome, thing, too, Dave. I was thinking about from, from valuation. You know, for a lot of privately held business owners, there is there is an emotional element. So, there are some people who just never grew up with any money. They've built an incredible business, and they can't believe that the business will be worth what it actually is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. There are a whole host of others that are at the country club, and a guy a couple lockers down just sold his business for X, and they hear that number, which often is probably inflated because they're trying to, to you know, <laughs> stroke their ego a little bit. But then they look and they say, well, my business is better than theirs. They have no idea if their business is better than theirs. <laughs> But they come to us sometimes with these ridiculous multiples and expectations, and it's like, we can't get there. I mean, we'll help you. That's why evaluation is good. We'll help you to prove this. And we can mm-hmm. get into a dialogue, but it's like, we're going to show you what it would take for you to be worth that and for you to have a clearer understanding of what's what the value is worth and what what's going to impact the value. If you want to get to that number, you can use this knowledge to help you get there. And if you want to use another a consultant to help you and, you know, and, and take the business to the next level, great. But yeah, it's emotion can be a, a big thing. And and one of the biggest things too is just having that real conversation beforehand so that the emotion doesn't hit you when you get disappointed after taking it to market. Because that can be devastating and it, and it's not a short process. So if you were wanting to be on, you know, out of the business in a year or two and you go through a six to nine month MA process and you don't get the results that you want, then where are you going to? And you'll feel you'll feel upset about selling a business rather than realizing that you got paid fairly for it. I don't even know if there's anything like the last like ten minutes is just a tre- treasure trail of gold for everybody. And it's just you know like I think you you started off the conversation with this that knowledge is empowering and what we're talking about like you, like the the confidence that you just well it just all comes down to cash flow because you're doing deals all day long and you know that it's always going to end up back to that versus the people that are sitting talking to their friends. They don't know how to judge whether they're getting bullshitted or not. And guess what? That guy at the country club or gal at the country club didn't talk about their net proceeds. They talked about the enterprise value, right? Sure. Sure. 
what is the best place for the listeners to find more about Prairie Capital, more about you and get in contact with you guys? Uh, so we can be found at Prairie Cap, uh, P-R-A-I-R-I-E-C-A-P dot com. Uh, we have a lot of resources out there uh, on our website that allow you to look into and, and look, listen to uh, webinars, look at watch webinars, um, draw down some of our, I mean, we have a lot of information out there on white papers uh, on a host of different topics related to ownership transition. Um, so th- that's a great spot to go and, and happy to have anyone join or have anyone call me uh, and you can find my, my, my information on that uh, as well. Uh, so yeah, that, that's, that's the best way to, to do. But the one thing I would say that we didn't necessarily touch on, we touched on a bit, but I think to me, the most critical thing for anyone in this is to start early in this process. Because yes, planning is important. And yes, you know, helping yourself get ready for that exit is important, but also different strategies have different timelines. And so mm. if you decide that an ESOP is right for you or a management buyout is right for you, you're going to want to start, you know, five, six, seven years before you'd ever sell the business outright. Uh, so there is a, a really important, um, it's really important for people to go through and to kind of get themselves set on what the right exit plan is and align their timing with that. Well said, Dave. And, and while well, you've got energy, right? Because you just laid out a six, seven year timeline. And like, that's the, that's the unfortunate part I get is people don't have the time or the, or the energy. Because I truly believe that like, People can accomplish what they want. They just have to put a plan in place and have enough time and capital. But it's like, if you don't have the time and capital or energy, it's like, I don't know what I can do for you. (laughs) No, agreed. Those are the keys right there. (laughs) Dave, thank you so much for being a a guest and then a good partner to Arcona and the team and everybody. Appreciate it very much. Absolutely. Thank you, Ryan. I had to, I have to see, I can't even get it out without laughing is Dave at the end is, you know, I just love cash flow. <laughs> like that sums it up. So I don't know if there's anything else I need to say other than go back and listen to the last 15 minutes of Dave because he was on a roll. And the only thing I would leave you with is go check out the intentional growth financial assessment. Um, you, you, again, there's 22 questions. You don't need your financials, no confidential information, but by the nature of the questions, you're going to understand how you should be organizing your company's financials to view it as an asset and project it forward. Like Dave's talking about. And then more, more importantly on the results page, Pat and I have five videos where we're showing you what good looks like and how to do it. So I think it's very insightful, especially as you're coming off the tail end of that uh, podcast where Dave is just talking about, we got to go to back to the fundamentals and me- measure, monitor cash flow, knowing that there might be options down the road, but uh, the financials and your strategies are what you can control. So go get more visibility by taking the assessment. Thanks everybody. And don't forget to tune in to next week where we're going to be diving into the transaction value and how to maximize purchase price if you wanted to be selling to a third party. Everybody have a great week and I'll see you next week.